You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. I'm going to be honest. I am not a great cook. As the longtime editor-in-chief of Food & Wine magazine, I've learned a lot about food by eating in extraordinary restaurants, tasting recipes in our test kitchen daily, talking to chefs. And yet, despite all of that, there is one culinary arena in which I am not an expert. Actual hands-on cooking. I have messed up literally every type of food. Meat, fish, chicken, bread, pie using every kind of technique, roasting, grilling, broiling, boiling, at every time of day, breakfast, lunch, dinner, snack. And I'm always surprised by my mistakes, particularly because, by the standards of today's foodies, I'm not an adventurous cook. I gravitate towards straightforward recipes with a high yum factor, a shortish ingredient list, and a smart, simple trick that makes the dish seem really special. Now, I come by my incompetence genetically. I'm descended from a long line of non-cooks. My mother goes out for dinner or cocktails seven nights a week. She does serve one family meal a year at home. She hosts our annual Thanksgiving feast. To the best of my knowledge, though, she has never considered cooking it herself. She has it delivered by a very good local takeout shop, and instead devotes her time to whimsical touches like finding colorful paper turkeys and writing our names on them for place cards or procuring an excellent selection of desserts. And so began my journey to master my mistakes and to become a better cook. Who better to teach me than the talented chefs whose restaurant meals have been an education in themselves? So I asked some of my chef friends to help me with my favorite recipes, the ones I've made for family and friends over the years. As I look back at all the mistakes I've made, I'm amazed that I didn't stop cooking altogether. But the desire to get people together to share a meal overcame any reluctance to cook or any embarrassment about a less-than-perfect dish. The chef lessons turned into life lessons. Now, when I cook, I hear the chefs in my head saying, slow down, stay focused. But I also hear them talking to me at other times, when I'm with my family, say, or in a meeting. I apply what I learn from them in the kitchen to every aspect of my life. Be present, pay attention, listen, have patience. I embarked on this journey to master my mistakes in the kitchen and share what I learned with you, dear reader so you could master your own kitchen mistakes. Along the way, I discovered a bigger lesson, something more important than the perfect fried chicken, though that's hard to imagine, or no-fail souffle, and that is to be honest about what holds you back, in the kitchen and in life, and face it head on. Dana Cowan is the editor-in-chief of Food & Wine magazine. Her new book is Mastering My Mistakes in the Kitchen, Learning to Cook with 65 Great Chefs and Over 100 Delicious Recipes. Thank you for speaking with me, Dana. So excited to be here. This is such a wonderful book, and I just even from its title, it speaks to me 
as somebody, not a chef, not a foodie, just somebody who wants to schlep a good dinner to the <laughs> table on a daily basis because, you know, you can't get tired of making the same thing all the time. And Absolutely. whenever you try something new, if it doesn't work out right, it makes you say, okay, tomorrow it's takeout. <laughs> so talk about your decision to to do this and the column that you wrote under the name Irma, which I love that because that Irma Rombauer book is one that I go to all the time. Yes. You know, as the editor of Food & Wine, admitting that I didn't know how to cook was dicey. And it took me literally 20 years to come clean. That's because there's an expectation that people have, both the readers of Food & Wine and the chefs who we cover, that I know how to cook, in addition to knowing how to edit a magazine, in addition to understanding storytelling. And so I didn't want to disappoint anybody, but I did want to learn how to cook. My troubles in the kitchen really have been ongoing since I was old enough to light a stove. My first sort of embarrassment was when I was popping popcorn at home, something that I still love to do, and I took the pan and put it on a Formica countertop, and the countertop exploded. The popcorn was fine, but the countertop was damaged completely and had to be replaced. So when I was at Food and & Wine and I was trying to engage with the, you know, the recipes and I would take them home and I would cook for my family, I would inevitably make mistakes. And on, I was usually cooking on the weekends because I work quite late during the week. So on Monday mornings, I would come into the office and I would say to the people in the kitchen, so this is what I did wrong or this is what went – this is – how bad it was. What did I do wrong? And they would be very forgiving. So you just need to change the equipment. Oh, your baking soda is too old. Oh, you just need a different kind of baking powder. And they would give me all these excuses. But I knew deep inside that it really wasn't the equipment and it really wasn't the ingredients. It really was me. And so I embarked on a column with our executive food editor, Tina Ulaki, who is my polar opposite. She is a genius in the kitchen. Everything comes easily to her. She's always cooking for family and friends. She'll leave at five o'clock saying, oh yes, I'm sorry I have to leave early, but I have 20 people coming over for dinner and I haven't started yet. And she means it. And she you know, goes to the green market in the morning and brings the bags of food to the office and takes them home and everything in her hands is delicious. And so I would say to Tina, this is, um, this is what I made. Can you fix my mistake? And we decided to make it a column in the magazine that's called Dear Irma, with Tina playing the role of Irma Rombauer. And I just, it was it was sort of an inside joke, obviously. Um, a lot of people wouldn't know about that great cookbook. But I found that my mistakes could be generalized. You know, how do you work with cheese? you know, so that it doesn't get glumpy or it doesn't burn or doesn't doesn't seize on you. And I enjoyed doing that, that column, but I was way too shy, way too embarrassed to do it under my own name. So it was synonymous. So, but that was a good 10 years ago. And I've gained confidence since then that if I admitted to chefs that I didn't know how to cook, they would not sort of either laugh at me or not want to be part of Food and Wine magazine anymore. And what I found in the process of doing this 
book and reaching out to 65 great chefs. They were so kind and so generous, and they taught me so much that I'm more happy than I could have imagined that I took on this gigantic project. I really think that the... uh the the results of this project are great. And I r- agree with you that these uh, lessons in the kitchen also make really good life lessons. There are, uh, this template is applicable in a variety of situations. And so let's get straight to some of the, you know, give us a precis um, at the beginning of the book of kind of what, to, how to approach and what the general areas are. And the first one, I think, is something that I, this is, something I am often guilty of, is you actually have to read the whole recipe, make sure you have all the ingredients. This is a mistake that I've made more than once, and I think I won't make it again. But it is incredibly frustrating when you um, only read step one and two of the recipe, thinking you're ahead of yourself because you didn't you just you didn't just read step one, but you got to step two. But there's five steps, and what you discover in step five is that it says refrigerate overnight before serving, and then you realize well you can't serve it for the dinner party that you're about to have. That type of thing is very frustrating. Or the ingredients. I mean, one of my favorite recipes in the book is something that I call forgiveness chili, and it's called forgiveness chili because. I thought I had all of the ingredients for this chili, but I discovered as I went through that there was something just a little off about every single recipe I had. The recipe called for whole tomatoes, but I only had chopped. The recipe called for ground turkey, except when I opened the packet of ground turkey, it was slimy, and I refused to use it, so I substituted ground pork. The recipe called for a type of white bean that I thought I had. It was a cannellini bean, but it turned out I only had a mini-sized cannellini bean. And I just threw everything in the pot, and it turned out okay. But in general, that's not a good route to take. In general, your food is not that forgiving, as that chili was. So my chili turned out, but had I tried to do that with, I don't know, you know, a, a another a chicken dish, it perhaps wouldn't have forgiven me at all, and we would have had a horrible meal. So you need to line up your ingredients. You need to prep your ingredients in advance, which there's a Frenchy term for it called mise en place, everything in its place. Those two things, reading through a recipe to the end, checking the timing. Do you have enough time to do exactly what it tells you to do without cheating? This is very important. And having all your ingredients and the right ones, you are 90% of the way there to good food. I, I totally agree. I just was recently tried to cook a stew, and I thought, well, stew takes about two and a half hours, so I got everything ready, got it all lined up, and then I saw, oh, this is a <clears throat> crockpot dish. Oh, no. <laughs> That's takes, a perfect example. It takes perfect. seven hours, so we're not having stew tonight, honey. You know, and, But I, I, one thing I think is very helpful is literally – Getting every single ingredient, clearing clearing the kitchen counters, and getting every single ingredient and spice and salt and pepper and water and measuring cup and everything you need out on the kitchen counters so you can see it and make sure it's there and grab at it because that's really helpful. It is. It's also very important to measure out what you need. I was making um, waffles 
And I had not taken into account how much oil there was in the waffle. So I was in the middle of the recipe. And I realized that the amount of oil that was in my cabinet did not match the amount of oil in the recipe. So I actually ended up calling my next door neighbor who I live in New York City, so my next door neighbor is on my floor. She was shopping in Soho, but told me how to get into her apartment, borrow her oil. Meanwhile, my son was whipping egg whites, and they went from sort of soft peak, which is what they were supposed to do, to you know mountain range during the time it took me to sprint into her kitchen, come back with the olive oil to get the proper amount. And as it turns out, you can work with hard ranges of um egg whites that have been beaten. But, you know, it's always good to not have to do that last minute sprint and count on a, a neighbor or a friend or have to stop the cooking process right then in the middle of a recipe. You also counsel us to not be lazy. I think this is highly underestimated and very easy in the kitchen. <laughs> I'm just cooking. It doesn't matter. Yes. <laughs> I am by nature a lazy cook because I, um, I don't have time. And and so laziness comes in all kinds of forms. The laziness might just be that um, you don't want to mince garlic. You know, you want to just smash garlic, for example. But there's a reason they're calling for it to be minced. I think that one of the, the great lessons is the reason you shouldn't be lazy is the instructions are in the recipe for a reason. And so trying to work your way around them, sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. Well, with the minced garlic, the bigger pieces you have, the, the less flavor gets out. If you crush it, it, it gets totally mixed in. That's a big deal in, in our recipe. It, it really can be. If you have, and also, if you have just a smash of garlic, it's sort of like, you know, who gets that special, who gets that special <laughs> bite and never wants to come to your house again? <laughs> You also counsel us to bring ingredients to room temperature. And as as one of your uh, collaborators put it, that's a fail waiting to happen. Particularly in, in baking. So chefs will often counsel that you bring meat to room temperature. Mm-hmm. And that is so it the meat cooks evenly. But, um, but you also want your baking ingredients at room temperature. And I've now heard incredible stories where you have, you know, like a hot liquid and a cold egg, and you put those two together, and it's a Jackson Pollock. It's not something that you would expect to see in the kitchen. So, um, yes, you want all of the ingredients to be room temperature. So if that, you know, you want your liquid to be at room temperature, you want your egg to be at room temperature, assuming that's what the recipe tells you, because it is not universally true in baking. You know, butter sometimes can be at room temperature. Butter some, sometimes can be... Um, cold, and that's essential to making a flaky dough. So you do, this is another lesson that I learned. Do not borrow one thing you learned from one recipe and apply it willy-nilly to another recipe because it might not work. So if you had learned, oh, every other baking recipe that I have has butter at room temperature. Even though this says cold, I know I'm smarter because every other recipe I ever had says you know, room temperature butter, it, it cold is a different thing. That recipe means cold. Do not apply that lesson. You'll be in trouble. It is like uh, the Asimov's rules of robots. You have to take them in order. The first 
one, read the recipe. Yes, it's true. <laughs> it really is true. Now, another thing that you counsel, and I think this is re- something I have almost learned, almost, patience. Mm. You put something in the oven. You leave the door closed for the time requested. You don't open the door 10 times while it's cooking because then you've just added about 20 minutes and muddled the cooking. Yes. I, I didn't realize how dramatically the uh, heat of your oven, the temperature in your oven drops if you open the door. But Thomas Keller told me that, you know, it would take the temperature down about 30 degrees. And so then has, the oven, when you close the door, has to get back up to temperature. So in addition to everything you've ever heard about souffles falling, okay, that's one thing, but we're not usually making souffles. So we might think, oh, well, it doesn't matter if I open the oven door. But it actually does because it changes the temperature and then it changes the amount of time it takes to cook whatever is in your oven. So that requires um, patience. But it also requires patience, for example, if the recipe says wait 10 minutes after the chicken is done, let it rest. And you're like, but I don't want to. I mean, the chicken's cooked. Why can't we eat it now? It smells delicious. But there's a reason. You need to let the chicken rest. And also, too, when you're frying something in the pan, if it says four minutes, you put it in there and you put it in for four minutes and you leave it a heck alone. Yes. Oh, there's so many things you have to leave alone. It's so challenging. <laughs> you know, if you are trying to get a sear on a piece of meat, and you just can't poke at it and say, well, I just want to see if it's ready yet. You know, you have to resist that checking to be sure that it's ready. It'll be ready when a certain amount of time has passed and you have a nice, good sear. You don't move it around. You don't move your chicken breast around, you know, just to just because you, you want to do something. You want to feel like you're cooking. It's actually cooking to let the heat do the work. With the protein. Now, I wanted to ask you about baking sheets because yes. I have I have about four baking sheets in my underneath my oven. They're all kind of like canted. I mean, I go to the bargain store or whatever store, and I buy one. I say, "Will this one bend?" No, so I put it in the oven with tomatoes to roast some tomatoes, and halfway through, I just hear this thunk. <laughs> I'm very familiar with that sound. <laughs> That's the left end saying boo yeah. and popping up and leaving the right. Yes. So how do we find a good baking sheet? I think that um, you need a really solid baking sheet. There are some, and they need to be a little bit heavy. You know, sturdiness is the opposite of lightness. So, you know, some people are like, well, I, I don't want to be hefting something heavy out of the oven. But the thicker they are, the sturdier they are. And I hate to say this because I I often can find very inexpensive alternatives to kitchen equipment, and I think that they work just as well. But these baking sheets can be a little pricey, but then you have them forever. As um, Hetty Goldsmith, who's a um, pastry chef at Michael's Genuine Food and Drink in Miami told me, she's like, they, they become your heirloom baking sheets, you know, because they're so sturdy and they're excellent conductors of heat and they don't buckle. So you should buy the really good ones and then take good care of them 
and your kids can have them. That sounds like a plan to me. And finally, I just want to say something, too. You mentioned get to know your oven. This is really important. And I mean, <clears throat> I just had to buy a new oven. So I went in and bought it. It helps to have an oven thermometer so you know how hot it is in your oven. Yes, but oven, so that you're absolutely right. It's great to have an oven thermometer. But I think what surprised me is how often all kinds of temperature gauges are not correct. Mm-hmm. So you might have a perfect um, oven thermometer that you can hang you know, um, in your oven, but it, it might be imperfect. The gauge on the outside of your stove might be imperfect, and there might be different parts of your oven that are different temperatures. So, for example, in my oven, the back right corner is very hot. The left side is um, more you know, lukewarm. And Thomas Keller, who you would imagine would be quite precise and demanding about the oven, said, actually, you just, you don't need to keep getting your oven calibrated to hire someone to come in and sort of fix your oven temperature. You just need to know what is the actual temperature inside your oven, even instead of just reading what's on your dial, because what's on the dial may or may not be correct. Let's talk about some of the recipes you have here. There are so many really great recipes. And you start out, of course, with starters and soups. And you have a really interesting recipe you call salsa mole. Yes. Um, Susan Feniger. Well, so all of the recipes in the book are recipes that are things that I've made over time. And then what I did was I reached out to the chefs and I said, this is the mistake that I made. How can you help me? avoid this mistake from ever happening again. So um, Susan gave me some great advice. But the way that I came to this recipe was a little unusual. I was having a party. And um, actually, Danny Meyer from the Union Square Hospitality Group was there. And of course, I have the hugest respect for him. And he brought his family. And um, I made a guacamole, and I would made a salsa. And the first couple of people who came in, I had them taste the guacamole just to be sure, really to get that compliment that's like, your guacamole is terrific. But instead, what I heard was, first person said, yeah, needs a little salt. I said, okay, add a little salt. Second person tasted it said, I think you need a little acid. So I added a little more citrus. Another person said, I think, did you add cilantro to this? I think you need some cilantro. And so I had some cilantro. I added the cilantro. The fourth person said, you know, this is how I make my guacamole. I add chopped tomatoes and I add um, some chopped onion. And I was like, well, that's very interesting because actually what you're describing sounds a lot like the salsa I have. So right in the middle of this party, I took my salsa. I combined it with my guacamole. I stirred the two together. And then to the fifth person, I said, so what do you think? How does this taste? And he was like, this is great. And that is how Salsamole was born. What a great story. It's such a great recipe, too. Uh, <clears throat> we were talking a little bit earlier because uh, Jacques Pepin has been at KQED recently. And he gave you some advice on souffles. Wait for it. Wait for it. Wait for it. Patience. Yes. But Jacques also said, if you're making a souffle, do not... Uh, Try to cook your first souffle for 20 people. Be realistic. You know, it's much easier to cook 
souffles for fewer people rather than many. And he said, um, what did he say? A souffle, you wait for the souffle. The souffle does not wait for you. A souffle is something where you really want to before you start making that. That's a great example of get everything out on the counter, get it ready, get it to hand so you're not in the middle of some kind of time-critical step because timing is really important in making that recipe. It is. And Jacques also had another tip, um, which was to use cream cheese. Because I said to him, you know, Jacques, I, I can never get this right. And he said, well, the answer is clear. It's cream cheese. And I was like, oh, okay. So um, there's cream cheese in, in this recipe now. Now, you also give us something, uh, a recipe that's just if perfect. If you have to, if somebody says, I'm having a dinner party, you can bring something. Spice nuts. That is the absolute perfect thing that brings totally 100% delicious, unusual, and transportable. There is a, there's been a recipe at Food & Wine magazine that our staff has loved forever, and it's the Wenty Vineyards um, Spice Nuts. And we serve them at parties. We give them as gifts. You know, we we just we love these nuts. But I like my nuts a little bit spicier. So I, I took the basic recipe, and then I just kicked up the heat a little bit. So they're they're like wicked spicy nuts. And they are, I think they're a little bit compulsive to eat. You just keep, you keep going until you realize you've been standing by the nut bowl and just, you know, eating without thinking because they're really good. And, and I think that that's one of the things you just talked about is really important is when you make a recipe like this, it's always good to start out and make it exactly as it is in the book. Use that as a baseline. And then once you've got that down, that's when you start to say, okay, now I'm going to tweeze it a little bit. I think that's right. Um, another you know, thing that I would counsel is that you don't think you're smarter than a recipe. And that you st- not that every recipe is perfect, though, in my book. The whole goal is to have the mistakes all be mine. So they, those recipes are tested. They're cross-tested. They're, um, you know, they're quite well vetted. But uh, some, you know, you need to follow the directions exactly as they are. And then when you have the finished dish, you can decide for yourself whether you might like it either spicier or less spicy. Or you might like, you know, if it's a, a dish with greens, you might like more greens or fewer greens. Your own personal taste should absolutely come into play, but only after you've tried it the original way. Absolutely, yeah. It's it's always good to just get it straight down, follow it down, get that baseline recipe down, and so you can. And it helps too to be able to get it to the point where you've somewhat memorized it, but still always refer to back to the the original. I think memorizing recipes, which is not something I have a talent for, is really a benefit. If you can internalize all of the steps and the measurements, I think you would be a flawless cook, actually. Because part of what can hang you up is if you forget or you go back or you lose your place or, you know, that following steps. Um, <laughs> easy as it sounds, can be difficult, but if you've memorized it and you have it in your muscle memory, it just becomes a flow. It becomes a dance as opposed to, you know, a struggle. And also it makes cooking more fun. It does. Now, one I loved, I made the chicken soup four ways, and I absolutely loved the, the winter chicken soup 
with uh, basil and and uh, spinach and zucchini. That was just it was so easy and it's just absolutely delicious. It's our new favorite. It's a it's a summer soup, but it's actually it's a great winter brothy soup. Well, it's funny because um, I developed chicken soups with my kids because, of course, you want your kids to eat vegetables and a little starch and um, a little protein. And sometimes that can be hard to do, but it's so easy when it's in a soup. So every Saturday when my kids were little, we would make soup together and they got to choose what went into the soup. That said, I would always put something green in the soup, and my son would always take out the green thing. So you've picked my greenest soup, um, which is a soup that he probably wouldn't eat. But um, but it is tasty, and it's nutritious, and it's so easy. Um, so I'm really glad you liked it. Uh, tell us a little bit about making uh, the pork meatball sliders. You made those with Daniel Holzman, and he had. Uh, there's uh, another... A piece of advice, avoid overcooking. Yes. Well, this was so interesting because I never thought you could overcook a meatball. Isn't a meatball just, you know, Teflon? I just thought that that could never happen. And when Daniel told me, you know, that he actually, you know, takes a toothpick and tests the internal temperature of the meatball, I I was I shouldn't have been, but I was stunned. Um, and he also talks about the the ratio of filler. You know that you you always want to um, to have some filler, like a bread, or um, you know it could be something like a ground rice if you want, but that will just like fluff up your meatball. And I actually thought the opposite. You know that bread would not make my meatball fluffy; it would make my meatball heavy. So um, I learned that little tip from him. Yeah, that's something I had always thought too. Meatball should be would be better if it were all meat, but that's not the case. Exactly, that was shocking to me. I'm sorry to say, sometimes um, you know the things that I learned are real head knockers. You're just like, of course, why didn't I think of that? Uh, as for salads, um, we have a new favorite uh, lettuce that we like at our house: butter lettuce. Oh, I love butter. Uh, so you have you. Brought us a, a butter lettuce salad with a delicious uh, uh, dressing. Yeah, it's a it's a Dijon vinaigrette. Extremely simple. Um, I love that. I, I I that's one thing I must admit. I'm a guy who looks at steps or looks at ingredients, and the shorter it is, the more likely I am to make it. That is the same for me. And anything that has a long ingredient list, I just think. Oh, dear. You know, this is a Saturday project, but not today. Yeah. Um, but I love butter lettuce. It's something that I d- identify with um, traveling to France as a child and having it the perfect vinaigrette. My vinaigrette is never perfect because I can never get the ratios right. And um, so I went to Suzanne Gowen, an incredible chef in L.A., and said, please, you know, what is the perfect ratio? And she said it's it's two to one. And she sometimes will go three to one, which I thought was interesting. The other thing that I thought was interesting was that she said you only need, I think it's a teaspoon of dressing per person. And that seemed to me to be so slight. But really, you don't want your lettuce leaf drowned or coated or, you know, dragged into submission by oil. And so... I get it. It's it's light and bright, and um, you don't need every surface every surface of the leaf to be coated with your dressing.
But that's that's so interesting. I mean, because obviously you're eating the lettuce to taste the lettuce. <laughs> that's right, that, that's... precisely. It's and and then that the dressing just pricks up your palate a little bit. Right now, I also love the seven uh, green kale salad. I'm a, I'm a big kale fan these days. It grows really well here in Northern California. Uh-huh. It's just it grows almost like weeds uh, by Sean Brock and. Out of that comes a lot of interesting buttermilk lore. Yes. Well, so um, Sean, being the uh, chef at McCready's and Husk down south, uses buttermilk all the time. And um, so I developed the you know the recipe of the of the seven greens because often what people say when they talk to you about making food look good, they say you should have contrasting colors. And I actually think that, Sometimes it's nice to have it within a monochrome. So the seven um, greens kale salad is seven different shades of green, which I think is so pretty. But I um, I love buttermilk. It adds this incredible tang. And so I went to Sean Brock and I said, so Sean, you know, what would you do with this? And he replaces, um, he'll often replace milk with buttermilk because you get like this sourness, which is quite pungent. And of course, there's always the buttermilk, you know, with fried chicken. And he has a million different things that he'd have you do with buttermilk. Yeah, salt it and leave it out for two days. That's, yeah. That's I left an that adventure. out because I'm not sure. I, you know, I, and I trust him completely, but I haven't tried that one. <laughs> not yet. Not yet. Now, um, with the veggies, you have uh, roasted winter vegetables uh, with April Bloomfield. And I have to say, I, Brussels sprouts roast so good. They're so tasty. I love Brussels sprouts. I had, I've had, i had many years of that I would call my Brussels sprouts phase. So it's not a phase. I think it's, it's a long-term affair. But I will cut them in half. Um, and I also like to toast just the leaves. You know, you pull the leaves off and toss them with oil so that you get these really crispy leaves. And then if you roast the Brussels sprouts, and you can have them caramelized on the bottom so they get kind of brown and crispy. And then the rest of the Brussels sprout can steam a little bit. So even within one Brussels sprout, you can have different textures. It's um, Brussels sprouts are a little bit magical. I agree. I, I like to if you take a really sharp, small knife. You can hollow out the bottom. You can. I've t- never done that. T- t- you can just peel it, hollow out that stiff part in the sure. middle. Then you can stuff a garlic clove in there. And then put that on the pan. Wow! Do you roast your garlic first? I guess you don't. But that's no. Seems... You put the you put the garlic in there, and you yeah. just uh, cook it uh, for a long time. Roast it just uh, in the oven. That sounds on top of really the, good. Olive oil, and salt, um, and pepper. So April is funny about roasting vegetables. She is best known um, for her cooking at the Spotted Pig. So she's all about the pig. But her next book is all about vegetables. And when you eat. April Bloomfield's food. You think this food is so simple. You know, the vegetables come out and they're crispy and they're perfectly cooked. And you just think, you know, she just put them in the oven on a sheet tray. But it turns out that it's not quite that simple because what April does is she'll cook them in a pan first with a splash of balsamic, a little bit of thyme, garlic, um, and she'll, with a little bit of butter, and she'll roast them in the pan before she puts them in the oven. Nice. Nice. But I'm a home cook, and I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to dirty a pan. <laughs> and then, so I asked her to help me, you know, just being more realistic about 
just one cooking method here, please. And so what she described to me, which I thought was so smart, was that you have to understand at what rate your different vegetables will cook. Is it a dense vegetable or is it a watery vegetable? And so a dense vegetable will take longer to cook than a watery vegetable. So you'll cook your dense vegetable smaller and your watery vegetable larger so that they'll cook on the same sheet at the same time. That's so great. Now, I also, getting back to Brussels sprouts, I'm sorry, I don't mean to, to harp on this, but roasted Brussels sprouts with caper raisin sauce. I mean, cooking the capers and the raisins in butter. I That's just a, a master stroke. I mean, deadly. That is um, a recipe that originated with Jean-Georges von Gerichten, the brilliant, brilliant chef from... Jean-Georges restaurant in New York City, but he has restaurants all around the world. And this is so easy, and you get so much flavor from them, and it's so unlikely. When I first read that description, I just thought, I am never going to like this. But Jean-Georges has a perfect palate. He's always interested in the balance of flavors, so there's something salty, there's something sweet, there's something rich, and it's pretty killer. I've been finding capers to be really useful. Like I bought a giant jar, and I thought, I'm never going to go through this jar. And I'm almost done with it. That is great. <laughs> I don't know. Well, I, 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 love, um, I love capers, too. And then I love caper berries, which are just bigger ones mm-hmm. um, that you can use either. Usually, I like to use them sliced. But um, the great thing about capers, they're sort of like a, a more convenient olive, mm. you know, Olives are salty and briny, um, but to use them in most recipes, you need to chop them. Mm-hmm. But a caper is like an olive, except you don't need to chop it. You just need to rinse it. Nice. Now, you gave us some great recipes for poultry. Um, braised chicken with leeks, mushrooms, and peas. Uh, Christian Kish. Grapeseed oil. Nice yes. to know about grapeseed oil. <laughs> Important. Um, Christian Kish was on top chef, and she's a fierce competitor. And when you're competing, you need to know things like, at what temperature is your oil going to smoke or burn? And the reason you want to use grapeseed oil is that it has a higher smoking point. So you can, the oil can get hotter without burning. Um, And Kristen was one of those people who insisted that I be patient, um, which, you know, is always a challenge. We were making that dish, and um, searing the chicken legs. And I personally was done after about two minutes. And Kristen said, no, you have to wait. I'm like, why wait? I'm going to cook them more later. She said, no, you have to wait. And so we waited. And we waited. And finally, it was done. It was brown. And I was ready to move on. And Kristen said, no, now you have to sear the edges. And so we stopped and we stirred the edges. And of course, it was perfect. But it really, um, you know, it took a lot of patience. And you also got uh, brought in Marcus Samuelson to help you with fried chicken. Again, nice to know peanut oil is what you need. Yes. And the thing about peanut oil, there are a lot of people who are, who are allergic. So he offers you um, another option. But yes, Marcus loves peanut oil. He also believes in the double dip. You know, usually you think double dip, you don't want to do that. But mm-hmm. he, he likes to fry his um, bird twice. 
Nice. Well, I like you. I'm a big fan of fried chicken. It's it's, it's really important to get it right. It was the one recipe in the book that before I um, embarked on this project, I had never made because I was too scared. Really? Just, yes, because I thought it's bubbling oil. Look, if I can mess up, you know, something in a blender, the idea of me in front of boiling oil just wasn't very good. But it's a shallow fry. And um, it turned out to not be intimidating at all. I'm ready to do it again. In in the meat section, you give us something that's just really amazing, Korean meatloaf. What a great spin on meatloaf with ginger and kimchi. Well, that just really gives it that, a different flavor. People have asked me, what are your favorite recipes in the book? And this Korean meatloaf, honestly, is one of them because it's um, the gochujang, which is the paste that I combine with ketchup to spread over the top of the meatloaf makes it irresistibly sweet and spicy, um, and the meatloaf is tender. And then you've got that kimchi in there for like another sort of bounce of flavor. And of course, I always love anything with ginger, so um, it's great. It's also a freeform meatloaf, so I don't make it in um, you know in a meatloaf pan. I just make it on a baking sheet, which makes it really easy. You just, like, pat it a couple of times, and it molds into shape. And here also, uh, you give a steak au poivre. And one of the things that I, I love about this is this reminds us that you don't have to charbroil or broil your steak. No. Um, in, in this case, you pat on peppercorns onto, I like using a New York strip, and this is another time when you s- sear it and you just leave it. And it's so satisfying to just let the steak cook because then when you take it off, the peppercorns are really crispy on top and the steak does have a char. I, I, <laughs> I like cooking um, this dish in cast iron. Mm-hmm. But um, that's great if you don't want to use a red wine sauce. So you can either do what I did, which is you can sear it in the cast iron, and then you make your sauce in a separate little you know, um, non-reactive saucepan. Or you could cook everything in a, in a non-reactive dish. But um, it's such a classic. It's, you know, um, and I love having a couple of classics in addition to something as sort of innovative, if you will, um, as Korean meatloaf. And uh, I, I also have to say, let me hands up for ribs. Your rib sauce is really great. It's 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 different, but it's super delicious. And again, easy. Right. Well, I um, with the ribs, the ribs. I think the real trick for me um, was that I boiled the ribs first. I know that you're talking about the sauce, which was very good. Mm-hmm. But I think that the trick here is for people who are intimidated by ribs because they take a long time and you always have to baste them and you have to baby them. It's a really good tip to cut them up and boil them first before you finish them in a hot oven or on a grill. And then you can put on that really great uh, barbecue sauce. Now, um, you also uh, give us a a really great uh, recipe for salmon, just very simple, again, Something that, that's like a weeknight dinner almost. It absolutely is. It's a weeknight, oh my gosh, I forgot I had to cook dinner tonight, except you have to have the salmon. Um, so the 
The salmon that I love to make is just a side of salmon, and then I rub it with a mustard, and then I have panko crumbs, which are Japanese breadcrumbs, um, blended with olive oil, and I pat those on top, put them in the oven. It's very quick. It's like you know, no more than 20 minutes, and then it's perfectly cooked, and what you have is uh, the top that's really crispy, that little, you know, a hint of brightness with the mustard, and then really silky salmon. It's uh, and part of it. What's so great is there's so little prep, there's so little cleanup, but it's really delicious. You also uh, talk about uh, lobster. You got some advice on how to cook a lobster, or, or actually how to kill a lobster. Yes, um, the way I had killed a lobster was I had um, put it tail first in boiling water. And let me tell you, for anyone who is um, thinking about doing it that way, it's a very bad idea because the tail hits the boiling water and the brain is still working of that lobster. And so its claws jump up in the air and it tries to get out of the pot, at which point you just feel horrible for the lobster. Um, I've, I've heard many other ways to um, dispatch a lobster humanely. I'd been told that if you sort of pet it on its forehead, it goes to sleep. I had heard that if you put it in a freezer, it brings the temperature down, and so it it's sort of unaware when it comes to the water. When I proposed these ideas to Eric Repair of Le Bernardin in New York City, he told me that I was going to come back as a lobster if I did anything like that. And he said the only humane way to kill a lobster is with a knife through the spinal cord, big knife, and then you pull down and cut through the tail. It turns out that that is um, you need a lot of conviction to do that. I, I do wish that freezing a lobster was actually the answer. That was a case where you had to learn to be here in the now, as it were. Yes. Um, so I said to Eric after I had sort of awkwardly killed the lobster, I said, you know, that was really hard. And he said, he was so sweet. He said, Dana, you're, you know, the shell of a lobster is not stronger than you are. And I thought, well, I'm not sure about that. (laughs) The lobster shell seemed pretty strong to me. And then he said, but the real problem was that you were not focused. Your mind was everywhere but the tip of the knife. And I thought, oh, my gosh. You know, I really thought that I was quite focused because I was looking at that lobster going, this is going to be really hard. But in fact, that's not what we should be thinking. I shouldn't have been thinking about the photographer. I shouldn't have been thinking about how embarrassing it was. I shouldn't have been thinking about the videographer. I shouldn't have been thinking, you know, oh, my gosh, what happens if I can't do this? I had all these thoughts going on in my head all at the same time. What I should have thought was, I am going to sever the spinal cord. If that was the only thought in my head, Eric's point is, I would have done it. No severing of spinal cords required for baked ziti. Mario Batali, pretty darn delicious. Can't go wrong with that recipe. No, that's one of my favorites as well. In in that case, um, Mario insists on using a bechamel. And I um, didn't really... I had asked him actually in advance, look, would you mind if I didn't use a bechamel here? And he came back and said, well, yes, I would, because a 
I said, well, I could just use cheese only um, instead of the bechamel. And he said, you don't want to do that because cheese can break and cheese is finicky. And what you're looking for is a recipe that's foolproof. So I recommend that you use a bechamel. I said, okay. So I was making the bechamel and I didn't have whole milk. So I was making a bechamel with low-fat milk. And I don't even believe in low-fat milk, honestly. I really believe very strongly in full-fat milk. And the bechamel was a really watery consistency. And I thought, well, I'm just going to wait and let it reduce. And so I waited, and I waited, and I waited, but it didn't really reduce. So I decided to go out and get whole milk, because obviously that was my problem. So eventually, I came back from the store, the bechamel seemed fine, and I tossed it with the pasta and the other ingredients, and it turned, it was delicious. Another must-try recipe in this cookbook, I believe. But I came into Food & Wine that Monday, and I said, you know, it's the craziest thing. I couldn't get the bechamel to reduce, so I went out to get whole milk, but it, it turned out okay. And they, there was this long pause. And they said, Dana, you don't reduce bechamel. What do you mean you don't reduce bechamel? Tina, the executive editor, said, no, with the bechamel, what you want to do is you have to, if you want it to thicken, you add flour. So that was a good lesson for a very simple recipe. I love the recipe for gas station fried rice. What a great idea. What a great recipe. Even the title of that recipe says, cook me to me. Uh, well, Roy Choi was the inspiration for that recipe, and he loves to make a gas station taco. He believes that everybody should be able to cook, and some people only have access to the ingredients that are at a gas station. So the recipe has leftover rice from takeout. It has frozen peas. And it is just, and beef jerky, and uh, which is a good surprise ingredient. And a little crunch. Um, he recommends potato chips. And it's just, it's really satisfying. You know, it's like great Chinese food without the fuss. We're going to go directly to where I actually went when I looked at this book, which is desserts. <laughs> and the dessert I baked was the pear brown sugar upside down cake. This is such a brilliant cake. It's so delicious. Uh, talk about discovering that recipe. Well, uh, that recipe was inspired by someone who was a test kitchen cook at Food & Wine for many years named Grace Parisi, who is spectacular at making... Um, good food fast. One of the things that I can't, uh, that I find hard to do as a cook is make caramel. And I've made some caramel in the book, but um, this is a way to get that caramel flavor with act actually having to make caramel. And what could be better? Because you, um, you basically combine butter and sugar as a base and then put a whole, you put then um, sliced pears, and then the batter on top of it, and cook it just all in one skillet. So it's a one-skillet cake that gets really caramelly and delicious. And you, it's nice to... important ingredient there is the, uh, the parchment paper. Oh, yes, I'm sorry. You're totally right. I forgot that's even a better trick. I'm obsessed with the caramel because that's what I fail at. But you're right. <laughs> that the, the, the parchment... Um, so you, you line the... Um, you line, the pan with parchment, and that way it's really easy to get out. Now, you also give us a recipe for milk plus dark chocolate uh, 
of chip cookies, and that's from Cheryl Day, and she gives you some advice to make them crispy. And I love my chocolate chip cookies crispy. I had so much trouble getting crispy chocolate chip cookies, but you really, it's all about um, getting the butter the right consistency, which I always stopped short. I just, and now I, my, actually my cookies are too crispy, so I have to pull myself back. Now, uh, Dana, now that you've mastered all your mistakes mm. in, the, in the kitchen, <laughs> what's next for you? Well, I'll tell you what I mastered next. And I haven't mastered all my mistakes. I continue to make them. As I just said with the chocolate chip cookie, it's so frustrating because now they're not cakey, which was worse. Now they're like a little too buttery. So I still, you still practice. Practice is really important here. Mm-hmm. But um, there are a lot of things that I've ignored because they seem to take time to master. And the one thing which would be shocking to your audience is that I didn't know how to drive because I grew up in New York City and there was no need to. But my next thing is learning to drive. Wow. Well, you've come to California. You've got Highway 1. This is a great place to learn. Yeah, I think I need a parking lot first. (laughs) I've been speaking with Dana Cowan. Her new book is Mastering My Mistakes in the Kitchen, Learning to Cook with 65 Great Chefs and Over 100 Delicious Recipes. Thank you for joining me, Dana. It's been a pleasure talking to such a good cook. Thanks. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.